Welcome everyone to the Solid Responder Podcast, where we share stories from first responders and talk about the past, the present, and the future in disaster response. Solid Responder highlights key issues in emergency response, exploring, engaging, and educating the emergency response community with featured guests from diverse all-hazard emergency response disciplines. Listen in as leading experts in the field tell their personal stories of dramatic and dangerous moments, the lessons that they learned and how their skills and leadership were put to the test. Listen in as we talk about taking good medicine to bad places. I'm your host, Joe Hernandez, and the Solid Responder Podcast, squared away, right away. Welcome, everybody, and I would just like to introduce you to a really good friend, uh, a member of the Fire Rescue Service since the late 90s, a member of the FEMA Urban Search and Rescue Task Force out of California, and I'm going to let her introduce and give us a little bit about herself, what she's done, and uh, how she's going to change your day and, and, and brighten up your, uh, your mind to what's going on in, uh, in California in hazmat medicine and in the urban search and rescue. And uh, most of all, she's gonna touch a little bit, we hope, on the wildland firefighting, which a lot of us really need to listen up to. Katie Roberts, thank you to for to joining us today on the Solid Responder Podcast. Awesome, thank you for having me. Hi, everybody. Um, my name's Katie Roberts. I um, am up in Northern California. I'm a member of Santa Clara County Fire Department, where I've had the privilege of working as a firefighter engineer paramedic since June of 2000. Um, I've been a paramedic in the county since 1998, and uh, I've been a member of California Task Force 3 since I think around 2010. Um, I started off my kind of USAR special operations world by um, going to hazmat school, um, which I absolutely hated the concept of hazmat, but I did it because there was a crew I wanted to work with. Um, ended up going to school and realizing it was more than just train cars tipping over and spilling stuff and that it actually pertained in our everyday jobs. So kind of fell in love with hazmat kind of embraced it, became a big hazmat geek. Um, and my career just kind of took off from there. I ended up, uh, going back to just audit a hazmat class. And in that class, ended up meeting a couple gentlemen from FDNY, um, kind of heard their stories from 9-11. I was on duty that morning, but I was still on probation, had no idea the magnitude or the FEMA system even existed. Um, and I remember sitting in class and kind of talking with these guys and started chit-chatting. They said, you know, you should teach. And I said, uh, no, I don't like being in front of people. There's no way. And they said, well, you're kind of a geek with this stuff and you should teach. So you're going to teach tomorrow. And I went, uh, what? <laughs> so I went home and studied my books and got up there the next day and taught. And the next thing I know, I got invited to come out and help with a class with San Francisco Fires Airport. And I went to my chief and said, hey, uh, I'm kind of lost here at our department, chief. I don't know where I belong or what I'm supposed to be doing, but I really love this hazmat stuff. And he said, okay. Uh, you figure it out and I will support you. And I still remember the day my chief, Ken Kemna, who gave me a couple shifts off, let me go up and help out with Richmond Fires training and uh, will forever be grateful for that. It got me into the teaching world. Um, the two gentlemen that I taught with with FDNY had been part of New York Task Force One. That was kind of my first introduction into the FEMA USAR system. So I uh, 
jumped on board with my task force. Um, my captain, fortunately at the time was the hazmat coordinator. So I pretty much like a puppy dog followed him everywhere, shadowed him, said, I want to do this when you retire. Um, and then learned about the med spec and got the opportunity to go to the med spec class with Scott McKinney. Um, and a lot of the instructors, Trip McKinnon, uh, Merrill, everybody that I now get to teach with, um, went through that class and showed up. And I can't remember if I was the only female in the class or if Linda was in that class with me, but I think Linda Buell might've been in the class before me. But I remember showing up, had my little baseball hat on, thought I was like, I'm all in, I'm a medic, I got this, and realized in the introductions that I was with some pretty amazing individuals, guys that had deployed to Katrina to 9-11 to um, just all kinds of disasters and things that I had no concept of. Um, ended up going through the class. Uh, at the end of the class, everybody's kind of comparing their bruises and how beat up we were and to the point where uh, I came home and people were literally worried that I had maybe been beaten from the intensity of this class. Um, but I fell in love with it. I was all in, um, went back to my chief, said, okay, chief, not only am I a hazmat geek, but I'm going to be a USAR medic geek too. And so he said, all right. Um, and then, yeah, it just kind of spiraled from there. Bug Scott McKinney said, Hey, I want to come teach this. I want to be a part of this. And next thing I knew I was in the system. I don't even know how many classes I've taught now, but, uh, right before hurricane Irma, I was blessed to get to switch to a medical specialist on California task force three. Historically, my department only had hazmat spots. So I was a hazmat coordinator and I got a memo that one of the other agencies had given up a spot so that I could have it. And they made me the med coordinator that day. So I got very good at counting band-aids um, and doing inventories. But uh, it was literally the day before we deployed to Irma. So that was my first big deployment, drove all the way across the country. Um, and it just, again, has taken off from there. So that's a little bit about me. <laughs> Fantastic. And, and they lost somebody incredible on the hazmat side, even though you went to the medical specialist class, I know that you still cross over to both disciplines yeah. as needed and fantastic. And I know the medical side's very grateful that you came over, especially because you've been able to bring over some of that hazmat over to our side. And you already had the ears of the program office and of a lot of the task force leader on the hazmat area. And so Medical always seems to have to knock on the door a few times before we're allowed to let in. And so you had that door kind of open and you were willing to kick that in. And so you were very instrumental in helping focus our attention on contamination in the austere environment. And how in the heck are we going to handle that? Do we bring out the standard hazmat units? Do we, What are we going to do? These are long deployments. These are a lot of members. These met and I might only be members that are at a forward boo, but again, at a rear boo, they're bringing contaminants back and forth. We've got to worry about the population. We've got to worry now about our animals due to Katrina and what yep. new federal legislation came out through on protection of our animals in hazmats. And so hats off to you and bring in a lot of that information on bringing a new discipline really to all of the disciplines and understanding what it's like to work in a contaminated environment in an austere environment. And you know what, anytime there is a disaster, whatever's left, it's pretty austere. So, you know, that I, I'm, I'm so thankful and I'm thankful that somebody pulled out right away and recognized your ability to instruct. We had the the pleasure of teaching with you at some of the, the MSOC conferences, again, that we held. Uh, we're going to hold more across the country and 
we're looking forward to bringing it out to California as we yeah. always have discussed. And that's where MSOC really will help shine itself out there too. But we never right. want to lose you on that hazmat scene. And, and I think women in the fire service is a subject in itself. And when you add a specialty to it, like women in hazmat, firefighters in hazmat, move over, fellas. There, there is another mind that can absorb as much and maybe even more than yours. Sometimes, <laughs> listen, I've been told by my wife that I only think on one side of the brain. For some reason, you all have that ability to think from both sides of the brain. I think if I was able to do that, holy smokes, I would have been a doctor somewhere. Right. So, <laughs> I, I'm really thankful. And you got involved with Hazmat IQ. You got involved with teaching across the country in the Hazmat discipline. How was it accepted across the country not only a new subject and them, everybody saying, ah, we know that stuff. You know, it's just bad methyl ethyl, you know, bad right. stuff instead of saying a bad word. And and uh, and then especially coming from you. Here you go, uh, a female coming out of California and you're coming up here to large departments, i.e. FDNY. And oh, boy. Yeah, it was interesting. And, and Hazmat IQ was the other big turning point in my career. I remember sitting with Jeff Burkowski from FDNY and I uh, said, you know, he was the one that kind of pushed me to teach. And and I said, yeah, but I want to do Hazmat IQ. And he's like, oh, kiddo, like, that's a tough class to teach. And I'm like, that's okay, bring it. I want to do this. And uh, introduced me to Joe Gorman and Chris Aguirre. And, uh, you know, I just said, hey, I want to do this. And that was back when I think there was maybe only 11 instructors. It was very small. I was the only girl. And I still remember stories of all the guys, you know, hey, who's this Katie chick on the email string? Like, who's this chick? Who's this chick? I said, oh, Burkowski's bringing her in. You know, who is this girl? And so they brought me back for the first uh, instructor development conference. And it was great. And obviously, everybody was like, you know, kind of figuring out who I was, what my background was, what I was capable of. And I got an opportunity to teach with almost all of the instructors. And it was great because, um, you know, I always joke in the fire service, I think there's two paths and the path for a female and the path for a male is very different in the sense that there are a hundred men that maybe all want the same position, these specialty positions, use are teaching, whatever it is. And you really got to fight to get to the front of the door. The difference with a female is there's not very many of us. And typically when you show up with a hundred dudes, they kind of all stand back and let you walk to the front of the line. But with that thought of like, huh, let's see if this girl can really do this or not. So it's, I may get to the door easier, but once I get through the door, it's always a battle because every time a new guy comes through the door, I got to prove myself versus kind of that good old boys feature. You know, once you're in, you're in. Um, and I don't know which is better, to be honest. I think um, being who I am, the loud, outspoken, five foot nine blonde from California, I'm not naive to think that that didn't open doors for me. But I also know that I really had to bust my butt once I got through those doors. And I know for a lot of my peers, the guys that I consider some of my brothers, my best friends, man, they really had to fight to get to that door. Um, so I feel very fortunate, honestly, for being a female. I feel fortunate that I had a chief that believed in me. Um, I feel really fortunate for one of my TFLs, Carl Custon, who when Linda Buell, my counterpart from Oakland, um, California Task Force 4, her and I were one of the first ones going, hey, guys, we're doing all these urban shield drills. We're breaking, we're breaching, we're doing trenches, but nobody's taking care of patients. So I don't care how good you are at knocking down a building. I don't care how good you are at building shores. If you can't treat the patient and bring them out alive, 
none of this matters. And I had voices, you know, Carl, who was listening to us, my chief Ben Mara, who was listening to me, Tom Jaquish, ex-San Francisco Fire. You know, they all went, God, these girls are talking about something and these medical specialists are bringing stuff that we never really thought about. So I feel very empowered in the sense that my mentors, those above me, um, they really kind of just gave us the voice and that was huge. And, you know, coming out and teaching for you and having the opportunity through the IAFF, you know, I got to go back and teach for Boston and, you know, talk about walking into Boston fire. And, you know, I still remember there was times teaching hazmat IQ and, you know, the first break, somebody would come up to me and be like, Hey, uh, you seem like you're pretty cool and you don't easily get offended. Can I say something? And I'm like, Oh, do I want to say yes to this? And like, <laughs> man, we really didn't think anything smart was going to come out of your mouth. And at first I'm like, man, that's kind of a slam. And then I thought, you know what? That's that whole, I proved myself. And then by the rest of the day, you know, they're like, wow, you're really bringing some good information. So like I said, it's been a wild ride. Um, it's been just incredible, you know, and doors just keep opening. And I, I forever will be grateful, honestly, to the opportunities I've had with IQ and within my own department and chiefs that have just said, you know what, you say you're going to do it, go do it and represent us well. So, Yeah. And from the colleagues that you mentioned, a lot of those in the early days, back from the early FEMA days that you had the opportunity to be mentored by, um, they all have excellent things to say about you. And that's why we were really excited to have you not only part of the instructor cadre, but on this Solid Responder podcast, being a hero yourself and being a mentor in that. And one thing she didn't tell you all listeners is that she is also an IAFF master instructor in HAZMAT. Uh, but she's, you know, not just a hazmat person, as she kind of spoke about also beginning as a firefighter and alluded that she was a paramedic, but she's also a rescue specialist. She's trained in trench, structural collapse, rope rescue, extrication. So all of those things that people tend to shy away from during a career just because it's dangerous. So many hours, I'm going to be taken away from home. I'm going to be taken away from my job. I don't know. I got to spend time on doing this stuff. I got to study extra. And you know what? I could just stay at the fire station and just be a regular firefighter the rest of my career and be okay. And you chose not to do that. You put on not only two hats, you put on about 12 hats and you (laughs) wore each hat awesomely. And it's like every time they reach out to you and ask you, hey, could you put on this hat by chance for today? It may sound frustrating for you because you want to wear the other hat, but because you wear them all so well, please know that that's why they're reaching out to you in those particular areas of expertise and what you bring to the table. Do know that. Um, Thank you. We've learned. I've got to watch you grow up to and mentor an incredible young man and your son. And now being off to college, (laughs) you know, here he was uh, not ever small because I'm a short guy, but a (laughs) young man in his early turning teen, not even a teenager yet when we first met him and to watch him grow and, and then watch you change over time and then be a protective person over that. Now seeing him across the country and going, holy smokes, I'm so glad I went to a lot of those areas and trained in those areas. And things that now change our lives and our perspectives and how we look at things. And I know that you have been on some incredible deployments. You just mentioned one of them being Hurricane Irma. And I know you were out in the Bahamas with Hurricane Dorian as it was coming through. So the, the hurricanes... But there's something that really sparked something in inside of you. And I listened to it that day 
I started my career in, in the fire service with the Division of Forestry uh, in the state of Florida. It was a great career. I, uh, I learned so much as a wildland firefighter holding that red card. And that's another hat that we didn't speak about that Katie also wears is she is also a red card carrier. And so for all of you that might not know that term, she is a wildland firefighter. Um, and has been part of the 2018 campfire um, in California that we know was uh, not only significant in size, but it was also significant in taking lives of particular members, um, members that are loved by uh, their families, members that are loved by their communities, and members that we want to continue to honor their legacies. And the only way that I feel we can continue honoring their legacies is to help all of us and all of those, all of those listening that struggle with a certain issue that might tend to have us go into an area that might be dark and to want to cause some type of a damage after an event that we had. Uh, the last show I, I mentioned, Chris, Fields, who uh, was instrumental at the Oklahoma City bombing, 1995, if everybody remembers, U.S. News World Magazine of a firefighter cradling a, a, an expired baby in his arms. He was a new firefighter. They handed him that baby, and so he had to process that throughout his entire career into being a father, mentoring his children to adulthood and staying focused as best that he could finish out his career and not hurting himself. You are strong and passionate about uh, this mental awareness, this what I call trauma time out. All of this stuff that we're doing, uh, not just going home after the event, but staying there day after day. And so going from PTSD to complex PTSD and extended, um, extended stress. We had a recent meeting not too long ago as instructors, and you were on that meeting as well. I, I happened to be invited as an old guy, I guess, in the system. And we heard some changes across the country on curriculum changes that the program office was looking at allowing from the rewrite curriculum panel on possibly removing any type of family extended care, however we call it in our modules, in our manual, medical team specialist manual, but addressing that type of mental stress and to leave it as a training environment for the task force itself instead of doing it as a component when we all come together from different agencies, instructors, as you mentioned, old guys, new people, males, females, people of other colors, everybody from maybe another mother and all the stuff that we can share is invaluable. Yeah. I think it's so invaluable, just so much, not only sharing that story and that lesson learned, but sharing that phone number that on one day, one night, I'm having one heck of a day, I can't get through and I can reach out to somebody. I remember Katie and she said I could call her at any time. And so for that reason, do you wanna see this stay in the program? Do you, do you feel that mental health counseling is an important part, not only of our daily routine as a firefighter, but when we're asked to go out on a mission for our own family members to say, mom, dad, you're going to where this is happening. 
all of these people have died because of that. Why are you now going to that, mom? Haven't you worked long enough? Hasn't, haven't you done enough? Can you just think about us right now and not take off over there? What do you think? Yeah, I definitely think that, you know, the mental health side of our job is, is huge. Um, I think what you're referring to, I've, I've lost two task force members to suicide. One, my best friend, one, a very dear friend, um, both of which people say like, Oh, you don't, you, you couldn't have done anything more. Like I kind of call BS on that because I do think we can always do something more. Um, I think part of the struggle with the system right now in general is that there's just not enough hours. There's not enough dollars, um, in any of the programs that we do, um, I've been heavily involved in the hazmat curriculum. I've been heavily involved in the medical curriculum. And, you know, there's just so many things that are unique in a USAR environment that we, you know, we just, again, the medical specialist class could easily be a three-week class with everything that we want to do. Um, and I don't have the perfect answer. I don't know, you know, just when we prioritize one thing, you know, somebody else comes up with another reason why something else is important. Regardless of how we get the training into the system, it does need to be done. And, you know, I've even struggled within my own team in the sense of, you know, do we send something home to family members stating, this is what your family members just experienced. And I've gotten pushback from TFLs, from chiefs that, you know, well, you know, that's overstepping. What if that family member doesn't want, um, or what if that team member doesn't want his family to know what he just saw or, or she just saw? And, you know, my big thing and one thing I've proposed in the system is I think when you deploy, you give your TFL or your admin, your person, their name and their contact. And that is your person. It could be your best friend at the fire station. It could be your spouse. It could be your teenage son, daughter. It could be whoever but that person is going to get very detailed information about what you saw operationally or in theater in the field. And that person will then know, hey, I'm going to check up on this person. And that person, again, you know, my guys at the fire station, they know if I'm not eating, they know if I'm not sleeping, they know if I'm up at night because we we live together for 48 hours. So I think whatever system we end up, you know, using or what we do, we've got to let each other know, you got to have a person, you got to have somebody and we're going to give them the details that maybe you don't want your wife to know or your husband to know, but somebody's got to know what you're exposed to. And I know you were hinting a little bit at the wildland fire stuff. And I know for me, most of the deployments I had been on were the hotel stays, the chasing the hurricane until we went on the campfire. And um, yes, I am a wildland firefighter, but I will be brutally honest that wildland is not my specialty. There are some individuals in my agency that when the bell goes off, they are on every strike team and they are out there when stuff is burning. I tend to be the person that goes after it burns. And with the campfire and the North complex, we were the teams that were tasked to go out and basically do body recovery, which as you remember in the FEMA system, we don't do water rescue. And now we do water rescue. We don't do body recovery. Well, Now we do body recovery. And I know for a lot of firefighters that has really hit home because a lot of the guys that deployed on, and I say guys is a unisex term, so I apologize. I don't want to offend anybody, but um, for those of us that, you know, went on those, a lot of those firefighters and those individuals not only went on the rescue side and the USAR mission, but they were also there fighting the fires. And so that PTSD component is huge when you've got individuals on a USAR team that know what that devastation looks like when there's a massive campaign fire and now they're coming through after everything's burned and you're literally digging through the remains looking for 
body parts. And, and the craziest thing, we were up there right after thanks or right for Thanksgiving. So as we're going through these homes that are literally incinerated down to the ground, we're finding bones, but we're not finding human bones. We're finding turkey bones from the turkey that was in the fridge. We're finding, you know, dog bones that were there for the animals. But that mind trip, we are not wired to fight fires and see that devastation and then turn around and have to go through the remains of those. So for me, that was the first time that kind of importance of PTSD, of those debriefings. My team, um, my doc, unfortunately, is the doctor that I lost to suicide, was on that deployment with me. But he was my advocate in the sense that we went to the TFLs and said, we need to do an all pause and we need to check in with people. And my TFLs, to their credit, did a great job. They brought everybody in and everybody sat in a big circle and you could speak if you wanted to or not. And we just checked in with everybody. And that was, I believe it was Thanksgiving Day that we did that. Um, and then when we got back, we didn't we didn't do as much as I think we should have, but my team did put out some um, meetings and debriefings and things that people could go to. But I can't tell you how many of my team members I get messages from on the anniversary of the campfire, like, man, I sure hope we don't get another one of those deployments this year. Um, And so it definitely sticks with people. You know, a lot of the canine handlers, they played an instrumental role um, in the campfire and at the North complex. And several of my canine handlers mentioned like, God, I could do without another OSO or another, you know, campfire deployment. Because unfortunately, those are the hard ones, lots of HRD dogs. And, you know, when those dogs alert, that's not a good thing. It's not like it is when you get a live find. So again, back to your thing, where it belongs in the curriculum, that's way beyond me. That's way above my head. I think it's even way above the the curriculum committee, but our voice does need to be heard that system-wide, that needs to be honestly a part of all of the disciplines curriculum um, in terms of that public health and, and mental health and safety that we deal with. Agreed. Wow. I hope you all heard that. There was so much in there that uh, I know that some of you are probably going to hit rewind a few times just to get a grasp of what Katie was talking about. Uh, There was so much in there. She did talk about an all pause, an important part of of something that we don't do because we think if we press on, I called it trauma timeout, of saying, okay, wait a minute. We just had two suicides within that complex over a certain amount of period of time. Why? Why? And that's not even counting the extra amounts of possible abuse self and or abuse spousal and or abuse with the children and everything else that we can think of that is an ugly uh, blind that raises itself up with how we deal or how we do not deal properly with the stress that's in there. And I love that you had said and even trying to push more into it just because of what happened and seeing the significance and To a certain degree, I hope that folks like myself, the old timers that aren't as sensitive as the new generation is, I hope we move on. I think they need to move on. Um, There's no room for that insensitivity, um, that that brash. You know what? I'd like to really hear the the background of that guy because it's probably not very good. And so instead of preventing what has happened in his life or what he has seen or she's seen what's happened in their life over not having the proper treatment for uh, the job occupation that we chose, but everything that gets thrown upon it, shame on all of us for not doing that. And hats off to the generation trying to change that. I'd mentioned and and Tom Carr early from Maryland Trask Force One when they tried to make the change in family support and 
spoke about it real briefly yes, uh, last episode with Chief Dave Bain from Canada Task Force 2, who kind of mirrored the FEMA system with the Canadian system. He said something that stuck with me, and I want to spread that word incredibly. He said, there are people that follow up. So they have a set of a red, white, and blue team. They have a red and white team. They're not as deep as our, and their uh -huh. flag is missing a color, you know, so they get to do red and white. And they have their person follow up like we're supposed to do. They don't call us. They call our significant other or our spouses. Yeah. Hey, or your son or your daughter. Hey, so how's mom doing since she got back? Hey, how's Joe? How's Katie doing since they Oh, you're asking, wait, wait a minute. No, do you want to talk to her? No, I don't want to talk to her. Yeah. How is she doing? Oh, well, not too good. Well, tell me about it. So she was gone for 10 days and now she's back. And is she eating? No, we haven't had, do you guys have dinner all the time? Yeah, we do. And so I was like, Dave, dude, you should be writing a book on this. I don't want to yeah. talk to that person. We're great liars. We cover up oh, really yeah. good. I'm a great poser. I <laughs> I want to talk to the other person. I want to talk to that person who has suffered the period of time that you were gone and all the crap that happened at home while you were gone. And then all of a sudden you come back home and who do we got? What's going on with that person? I know that I said something in particular with the Oklahoma City bombing when they set up their forward boo for a break, for a stress relaxer, for trauma timeout, for all pause. They built a small uh, plywood structure to get into and to sit down in. They called it the uh, Hilton. It was the Maryland Hilton because it was built by Maryland Task Force One. However, they built it in line of sight of the Oklahoma City bombing. And so there sat the responders with their mouths open and their eyes wide open, deer in the headlights, looking at disaster, how much time out and how much pause did they really take out in their time, ready to go back to work. I got to get back in there. Yeah. And you think that since 1995, we are in 2021, that we would have learned a good lesson and we've learned many lessons up to now. And I don't know if we've done a great service. And so for that reason, I think that we need to bring back and strengthen that family support. And the only reason is, can you talk to the safety guys? Can you talk to the medics? Can you talk to the physicians as opposed to leaving them out of the fishbowl. The reason I say that is the recent FEMA event at the Surfside building collapse in Miami Beach, Florida, had several federal teams brought to that event. They set up their booze within my three S's that I don't like, and that's sight, smell, and sound. Yeah. And those three things trigger a trauma response in individuals that sometimes doesn't do well with them. And so why did we cause that sight, smell, and sound of being right there in front of that instead of moving it down? And so we have a lot to still learn. We've got yeah. a lot to learn from individuals. We've got a lot to learn from that community. We've got a lot to learn from ourselves, as you said, being sent, uh, going through, talking things over, expressing it with our, with each other and making sure that we're okay. You said in the fire station, it's easy to identify that particular event. But when we go home, do we hide all of that just because we have to live with that person or persons as opposed to the fire department now the way it is? And I blame some of this on the changes, you know, good or bad, when they went from an open room 
where mm-hmm. there were shower curtains in between everybody. And we kind of all went to bed at the same time. And we kind of all woke up at the same time. And we all yep. sat down at the dinner table and everybody pitched in their money. We all ate dinner together. Yep. And unfortunately, there was one big bathroom and they, they, we put a lock on there so that when you would go in there, you would lock everybody out of the station yep. in that bathroom. <laughs> it's all mine, guys. Too bad. And then everything became sensitive. But with that sensitivity came individual bathrooms, individual dorm rooms, individuality, individual TVs. Yeah. And we lost touch with each other. And so you say, good morning. They head off into their little cubicle. They go onto their social media and they have nothing to do with each other as we normally used to do. And unfortunately, I think that has something to do with it. I don't know how that will ever be able to change. And I don't know if that will change, but if we can work around that to some degree, I think it would be awesome. Yeah, I definitely feel fortunate. I started my career when we did have the big dorms and everybody was together. And fortunately, my station is still very much like that. We only have the <laughs> partitions. So I love it. I'm still drawn to that. I hope to finish my career. They're going to remodel my station. And I said, God, I hope they don't do it before I leave in four years. So, um, but yeah, it's very true. It's, you know, and the other thing too that's interesting is I think for a lot of us that have really, like you say that I wear a lot of hats and that I do a lot in the system. And you were talking a little bit about like when kids are asking and, you know, families asking like, do you really have to go? You just went, are you going again? Why do you have to keep leaving? I think for me, and I think for any, anybody in the fire service, but especially women in the fire service who have children is don't be afraid to embrace this career and this profession. And don't be afraid to expose your children to it. Um, Joe hinted that I have, you know, my older son, I have, I actually have two boys and now my 16 year old wants to be a firefighter. My older one wants to be a doctor, but I mean, I brought them out to the med spec class when they were seven and nine and, and their first exposure was Dario Gonzalez from FDNY. And I came home and my oldest one said, mom, I'm going to be a doctor like Dario. And he had a bunny rabbit (laughs) C-spined with a Tupperware lid and baseball belts. And now he's, you know, a freshman in college and my younger one, you know, just comes out every chance he gets. And so, yes, it's very demanding this career. And the more you jump into, the more it takes you away from your family. But this use our family also provides an extended family for your family. And my children are who they are because of the men and women that they've been exposed to since they were, you know, little kids. Um, and so I'll forever be grateful for that because this career has given me more than I ever dreamed of and also hasn't really empowered my children. So that can be tough for a mom. It can be tough for a dad too, but it's an amazing ride if you take it. What a great legacy that those young men get to see and follow and not feel, I mean, they feel they got to fill some big shoes. And yeah. so <laughs> when you got to fill mom's shoes, guys, you're in trouble. I mean, you, you guys got a lot to go. But, and I think it's fantastic because it, it, the California uh, teams, for all of you out there listening, uh, the great eight, what we call the eight California task forces, urban search and rescue system. FEMA was designed after the Palo Alto earthquakes in 1989. And uh, if anybody remembers, it was during the World Series. And of course, I'm going to remember who was up the bat, Jose Canseco, just because of his nationality and mine. And uh, the Oakland Oakland Athletics at the time. And uh, we had an earthquake. It was midday. It was rush hour. Uh, But not a lot of people on the highway. Why? Because they were at home watching the series because it was in California. It even meant that much more to them. And so if that event, i.e. just like the World Trade Center would have happened, 
an hour before when everybody was rushing to get home out of work, rushing to get to the stadium for the baseball game, how many more lives would have been lost and what would have happened? And that's why FEMA was created for if we had an infrastructure failure due to a large earthquake, and it was larger than the uh, earthquake in 1989 and extended all the way out to Utah. And then our cousin Merrill would have ended up with beachfront property. Yeah. That's why the system is there. It's meant to, to help the overwhelmed infrastructure. God forbid we have a national catastrophe. And I was talking to Dave Bain from Canada Task Force 2, CATF2, ironically. <laughs> and they had an exercise with the U.S., at Mastatatuck and the Australian team was there and they were trying to mimic a 7.7 earthquake. This earthquake was going across the center of our country, splitting East Coast and West Coast in half. And so there now we are on our own resources. We can't lend ourselves to each other anymore. And now we're looking to our Northern brethren, to our Canadian task forces, i.e those out in British Columbia and in Montreal coming down to help the Western teams, those in Calgary and, and, and Alberta and those areas coming down and helping out the East Coast teams. And so incredible how we may need to lead to that if there was a disaster, depending on where the fault line may happen. Uh, but it's neat to see it. It's really great to see. Um, it's great to see how California is covered with all of that. Uh, you guys have an incredible system out there. There's a lot of, uh, Interesting uh, eyes open up when we start seeing the California teams coming across the country. And it's like, yeah, here they come and get yeah. them out of that area. And, and we're looking, you know, not looking forward. But unfortunately, as a disaster happens, everybody wants to go and help and being a, a first responder. That's what that's what we do. And so I, I, I'm hats off. I mean, from your training events that you've had across the uh, the country, because they've been a lot to pushing people into the hazmat arena, even though they don't want to. One thing that I do want to make mention is that you were very instrumental on accomplishing a task that many could never accomplish. And that is to work with manufacturers and get safety on every single responder and putting rad watches on our members when they go into a contaminated environment. And so thank you for fighting for particular tools, items, fighting with vendors, being able to come up with, i.e., not only our carboxy hemoglobin monitors and putting them on the USAR teams, but adding rad watches and saying, we need to keep track of everybody that's in there. There's a reason why we need to watch everybody in there. And so I'm sure it was something that the system frowned upon at first, of course, because of the dollar signs. But when you showed them the importance and the reason for it, that kind of contradicted anything else. Well, I got to say, I was I was super lucky to get to come back and very welcomed by Mark Hunley and Mike Kenny to come back to the hazmat subwork groups and and they are they are solely responsible for all of the safety equipment that we have. I wish I could say it was me. It wasn't. I was just the one that came in and chirped up on the medical side of stuff. But man, the safety equipment that we have, we truly are blessed, and they're constantly fighting for the best suits, the best monitors, the best technology out there to really keep our our people safe because you know there is a huge difference between a hazmat team on a fire department and a hazmat team for USAR um, and they've really embraced making uh, the curriculum 
kind of surround the environment that we are. You know, they've taken out the plugging, the patching, the diking, the big hazmat level A suits, and they've really just focused on the health and safety of us as a USAR team. And so being a part of that hazmat work group and getting, you know, that welcome to come in there and kind of bring over the medical side of it was huge for me. But that, that committee, that group of individuals are constantly fighting for equipment for us. And, you know, they've, had a loud voice in the system and it's definitely for our, for our benefit. So kudos to them. I wish I could take the credit, but I can't. That's okay. You were there an instrumental in helping that get across and you gave them some medical insight in that. And for some reason, medical is part of that, that whole program and then medical gets left out and we know how instrumental medical really is in that whole environment and putting that together. And just because we do go through a decon doesn't mean we're not sick anymore. We're still sick and we need some antidote treatments, et cetera. But Hats yeah. off to that. And so, I mean, you, you've really covered all the the hats of that spectrum. And that's why we say hats off and what you've accomplished in your career and how you've been able to do it and raising your sons and still fighting the, uh, the uphill battle of the male-dominated uh, employment, but yet definitely having a place because of the experience, because of your knowledge, because of being pushy. And I love that you were being pushy because you brought a lot to the table. There's a lot of gentlemen that can't even get to that podium that you have uh, and or present that way. And thank you for doing that. I want to thank you for at least giving that point of view to all of these folks out there and encouraging girls like my granddaughters who one day (laughs) may want to be a firefighter, a rescue worker, a wildland fighter. You know what? Hats off to whatever they want to be. I'm all for it. And you're a perfect example that it can be accomplished. And not only that, accomplished to a really high level. Katie Roberts, oh, thank you. Santa Clara Fire Department and California Task Force 3 with FEMA Urban Search and Rescue. I can't thank you enough for being on, for being a solid responder, for being a hero and for being a very good friend. Thank you. Back at you. Thanks for having me. And if anybody out there ever needs help, Joe has my email. You can reach out. Happy to help you. Connections. Pay it forward. So that's what it's all about. Excellent. We'll make sure that we have Katie's information, contact information you all heard. Be kind and reach out and uh, learn a lot from her. Thank you very much, Katie. You have a wonderful night. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Bye, everyone.